Barth was the best teacher of that lesson. The 1990s was a frenzy of people thinking that happiness comes from the outside. If I had more money, more prestige, more something, I'd be happy. One thing that you didn't hear a lot of in that era was the reflection, what's important to me, says Marshall Goldsmith, who is as entrenched in the inner circle of the world's most powerful CEOs as Bronson is seeped in the lives of ordinary people on the front lines of the economy. The positive spin on the bust is that people began to see the illusory nature of that kind of happiness. It all disappeared, and it always can disappear. Goldsmith is one of the world's most celebrated behavioral coaches with more than 50 CEOs and top global companies among his clients. He's probably the only one in the world who professes equal devotion to the wisdom of both Peter Drucker and Vietnamese Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh. Goldsmith's advice is peppered with ebullient Buddhist-inspired aphorisms, be happy now, life is good, and his simple but profoundly effective process for helping successful people achieve positive, lasting change is deeply infused with Buddhist philosophy. The great Western disease is, I'll be happy when, he says, when I get the money, when I get the BMW, when I get this job. Well, the reality is, you never get to when. The only way to find happiness is to understand that happiness is not out there. It's in here. And happiness is not next week. It is now. Which brings us back to the original problem, how bad the economy is right now. How do you act powerfully when you feel like a victim of global economic forces? How do you take risks, try new things, learn and grow when there's no give left in the system? Goldsmith is unforgiving. Make it up, he bellows. Most creative people make stuff up. Nothing about this economy prevents you from pursuing your long-term dreams. There are tons of options. It's just that most of these options involve work. The price of achieving your dreams just went up. Big deal. The nice thing about achievement is, when it's something you do for yourself that's important to you, even if you don't get the money, you'll still feel like you won. By Polly Labar. 2. A few years ago, I wanted to be a star at work. Am I better off just keeping my head down now and staying in the background? Absolutely not. Stars are needed more than ever before. Case in point, when times get tough, better performers are in higher demand, says Robert Kelly, author of How to Be a Star at Work, Crown 1999, and president of Consultants to Executives and Organizations. The best insurance policy is to be a star contributor. What constitutes being a star has changed, though. Being an expert in one area is no longer enough, says Kelly. You need a real understanding of the company's bottom line, its strategy, and how your expertise can have the most impact. And remember, there's a big difference between being a star and being a diva. Your goal is to make yourself valuable to your company and to the marketplace, says Kelly. View yourself as a bundle of assets and make sure they appreciate in value. By Chuck Salter. 3. I don't like my job. I'm a slave to my paycheck. What can I do? Dear listener, you're not alone. Regardless of whose research you look at, there are millions of vocationally joyless people in this country, people who are deaf to their true calling. A career pays the bills, and it might help you gain a sense of power and status, but it probably won't fulfill you. Only when you know your calling, your deepest talents, passions, and values, can you bring your true sense of self to your work. When you bring all of your strengths to the table, you aren't motivated by external benefits like money or job title. 
you are motivated from within, and you ultimately stand a far better chance of being effective in your work and successful in your career. If you are thinking about making a job or career change, the first step is to know thyself. I can't help you figure that out in the letter, but I can give you a one-minute formula to help you get started. G plus P plus V equals your calling. The G stands for your gifts. The P is for passion, and the V equals values. Taken together, they add up to the one thing you love so much that you do it for free. How do you think about that? First, look at your gifts. I've done strength assessment for more than 30 years, and I can attest that all of us are bored with certain core talents. Whether it's creating or collaborating or leading, you know your strengths, and chances are your spouse or even a trusted colleague knows them too. Next, think about what you are passionate about. To paraphrase Aristotle, where your talents and your passions cross, therein lies your calling. If you use your gifts on something that you feel passionate about, you'll put yourself on a pathway to finding your life's work. But there's a third component to this formula, your values, which is really a code word for environment. People instinctively seek an environment where they know they will have a full voice in matters of consequence, a place where they don't feel constricted, where they don't have to check themselves at the door. Such a work environment lets them breathe life into their gifts and passions. If you don't find an environment that feeds your soul, all you're left with is a paycheck. You may think that finding your calling is an unaffordable luxury in this tough business environment. I couldn't disagree more. Excellence is a survival skill, and excellent performers know their core strengths and passions, which they leverage in environments that honor their values. Put them up against people who simply work for status and a paycheck, and who do you think will win? Sincerely, Richard Leiter, founding partner of the InVenture Group and the author of four books, including the bestseller, Repacking Your Bags, Lighten Your Load for the Rest of Your Life, by Barrett Kohler, 1995. Number four, I just got my MBA. Does that mean I'm SOL when it comes to landing a job? Even at the top B schools, many graduates are scrambling to get an offer before their loan payments kick in. Peter Degnan, Director of MBA Career Management at Wharton, has some advice for anxious grads. First, he says, lose the herd mentality with respect to industry, geography, and salary. Focus more on experience and opportunity than on location and compensation, he says. Which fields are hot? Healthcare has been healthy, real estate looks promising, and consumer product companies are still hiring, especially if you're willing to look beyond the east and west coasts. Second, says Dagnant, be prepared to show a company how you can hit the ground running. That may mean emphasizing prior experience over MBA skills. Experience coupled with an MBA is what makes the difference. Third, use your network of students, alumni, colleagues, and friends. But be savvy about it, he advises. Focus on building relationships, not simply pleading for a job. Fourth, as hard as it may be, try to stay upbeat. A recruiter will smell desperation, Degnan says. Stay confident. Finally, Degnan says, be sure to follow your heart. Don't get cut off with what your friends are doing. Think about what you want to contribute over the life of your career. Linda Tischler. Number five, how do I lead for the long haul? People probably wonder, how do you keep from getting bored doing these things? But I never feel bored for one minute because I'm always learning something new. 
I picked Lyndon B. Johnson because I wanted to know how national political power works, and he understood such power better than any president or politician in the second half of the 20th century. Each book focuses on a different form of power, and the third volume is about legislative power. Learning how the Senate works was amazing. When you get to be 40 or 50, having the opportunity to learn something new is absolutely thrilling. I can't stand the thought of doing the same thing over and over. I didn't know the project would take this long. I originally envisioned it as three volumes. I thought that I would do a few interviews about Johnson's life in Texas Hill Country, where he was raised, and that would give me the color I needed, probably a chapter or two. But when I went there, I was fascinated by this world cut off from the rest of America. Coming from New York, I didn't understand it at all. I realized that I had to move down there. My wife and I ended up spending the larger part of three years there. Tracing the development of Johnson's ambition became a big part of the first book. With writing, I found that pacing is very important. I used to write for as many hours as I could sit at my desk, but I found myself throwing out most of what I would write in the last few hours. Over the years, I learned how to make myself quit after five or six hours. I think that the best piece of advice I've heard about writing was from Hemingway. Always stop when you know what the next sentence is. I've never felt bad about the length of time spent on the project because I think that it's worth devoting my life to, or at least a lot of years. It's so important to believe in your work. It's not simply writing a biography of Johnson. I'm explaining to generations to come how political power works, how it shapes all of our lives, and the realities behind it that are not taught in school. It's something that people ought to know. A former newspaper reporter, Robert Caro, has spent the past 27 years chronicling the political evolution of former President Lyndon B. Johnson in a four-volume biography. Master of the Senate, Knopf, 2002, is the third volume, took 12 years to research and write. It won the 2003 Pulitzer Prize for biography. Caro is currently working on the fourth and final volume. Six. In a down economy, am I better off as a specialist or a generalist? Most people would likely vote generalist. If you don't know where your next gig will come from, better not to be typecast. Not so fast, argues Ezra Zuckerman, professor of strategic management at MIT's Sloan School. Zuckerman and his colleagues did a three-year study of the film industry to see if typecasting, a term that elicits howls of anguish from actors, could work to one's advantage. The result, for most actors, being identified with the genre helps maintain a foothold in a tough industry. In the study, less than one-third of actors who got a film credit found any further movie work over the next three years. So what does that mean if you're of the Sly Stallone of enterprise software? You have to fit into a category that intermediaries like headhunters will understand, says Zuckerman. If you start off as a generalist and try to avoid typecasting, you may not get to play in the first place. That said, your best bet for standing out is to demonstrate a neighboring set of skills that can be rare for someone in your category. Think Jim Carrey in The Truman Show. Then, once you land in the job, you can leverage those skills into a position with more range. 7. There's less work to get done, so how can I spend less time in the office? One of the great mysteries of the downturn is how seemingly every company complains that there's not enough business to go around, yet most of us still feel overworked and overwhelmed. 
Here's a four-step guide to using the downturn as an opportunity to slow down. Step one, admit to yourself, I am not indispensable. Repeat over and over. Most people don't want to admit this. Most people are wrong. Step two, take a vacation. If you're not used to vacation, start with a four-day weekend. Plan it months in advance and share your intentions with your boss and colleagues. That way, a last-minute crisis won't easily derail your getaway. Step three, get out more. I cut back a few years ago, says Robert Drago, professor of labor studies at Pennsylvania State University, and a longtime advocate of a federally mandated shorter work week. It was the most difficult thing I had ever done. First, I had to force myself not to think about work all the time. The easiest way to do that is to get involved in another organized activity, something outside of work that actually requires you to be there at a certain time. For me, it was coaching soccer. It could be getting involved in a church activity or taking a class, anything that requires a concrete commitment with real demands. Step four, restructure your work. This is the toughest step of all, not just because people are wedded to self-imposed overtime, but because many bosses demand it. You would have to make it financially worthwhile for your employer, Drago says. Employers save money when people work longer hours because the alternative is hiring more employees and paying more in benefits. One option is to present your boss with a plan for a job share, which in many cases can be costless to the employer. Another, more drastic possibility, quit the job and refashion yourself as a consultant. Your hours will be your own, more or less. Keith H. Hammonds. Number eight. Is this a terrible time to leave a job you don't love? We were hoping for a counterintuitive answer to this one. You know, some rah-rah exhortation that you shouldn't let a slow economy dull your ambitions. So we sought the advice of the irrepressible Jeff Taylor, founder and chairman of Monster, the recruiting website. But even the high-energy pro-change Taylor cautions a go-slow approach. No matter how much extra work has been dumped on your desk or how grim things seem at your company, now may not be the ideal time to start shopping for that new interview suit. You can sit around and focus on how your job feels like it's hit a dead end, he says, or you could look at this amazing time to double down at your company. Double down? Look, your company has a lot fewer employees, Taylor says. Monster, for example, had to cut 25% of its staff during the past year. There hasn't been a better time to push your career forward within your company and take on additional responsibility. But Taylor says you won't see that opportunity if you're focusing on how bad things are relative to the glory days of the late 1990s. There's no question that there are lots of unhappy people in the office these days. In polls of its website visitors, Monster found that 70